This is Michael Easley in Context. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Welcome today to the broadcast. We're in studio with Dr. Joy Riley. Dr. Riley is the executive director of the Tennessee Center for Bioethics and Culture. She's also board certified in internal medicine. She has done research in the field of biochemistry and many areas, including stem cell research, the cloning debate, genetic issues, transhumanist movement. On and on it goes. Uh, Dr. Riley, thanks for coming to the studio today. Thank you for having me, Michael. Now, these are big issues, Joy, and people hear some of the bioethics and uh, stem cell research, and we kind of glaze over. So, doctor, give us the primer. So, we're, we're 12th grade educated people. Okay. And so, how do we start thinking about some of these issues at, at, from a high level before we start talking about them specifically? That's a great question. Bioethics, just the term, tends to make those eyes glaze over often. And so it's helpful to remember that it's a made-up word. So there are two components, bio meaning life, and ethics meaning doing right. So it's about making right decisions regarding life issues. And no matter what your educational uh, background and no matter what you do, you will have bioethics decisions to make in your life. Right. When when you started out in medicine, were were you interested in this from the beginning, or was this something that sort of came up as you were training? Actually, in college, uh, I had a medical ethics class under Richard Barber at the University of Louisville. And then in medical school, I took what was an elective in medical ethics. Hmm. And then basically, medical ethics wasn't so much a separate um discipline at that time, at least in our institution. And the primary ethical teachers we had were our attendings. So the Mm. attending physicians, the professors were the ones that taught you not just about medicine, but about the art and science of medicine. And that included ethics as well. So give me a couple of scenarios. A, A person who's not been to the hospital before, they've not faced some dilemma, and now they're facing an ethical issue. What, what does that look like for a patient? Okay. Well, actually, there are several things. It, in fact, everyone who's admitted to a hospital will be asked if they have advanced directives. The hospital is required to ask that. You are not required to have them, but they are required to ask. So that will be your first your first mm-hmm. time. And that's at intro. Okay. So that's when you're checked in or registered. Um, I remember when my son, who was 18, was admitted for a an anterior cruciate ligament, an ACL tear, and he was going to have that repaired. And so the admitting officer asked, do you have advanced directives? And he, of course, had no idea what that was. I was his mother and very in touch. And I said, I am his guardian and he is a full code. So uh, that sort of obviated further discussion. But at any rate, so who gets involved with ethics discussions in the hospital? Well, usually ethics problems in the hospital tend to rise primarily from communication problems. So it can be a patient who is not pleased with his or her care or their family, or it could be that they have not communicated their desires um, effectively Mm -hmm. to the staff. There could be a question about code status. So, and when you mean when you say code, you mean 
Oh, okay, sorry. If someone stops breathing or their heart stops beating, do they desire to be resuscitated? And that's not a no-brainer question because not everyone who has CPR or attempted resuscitation actually is resuscitated. And there there are other issues that come to the fore regarding that. So if someone has rib fractures already from like metastatic cancer, Mm. you probably wouldn't want to have that person resuscitated because it will just be more fractures of ribs. Let's think about it from um, birth to death. So uh, we're coming into the hospital and a woman's having a child and now the child's got an issue. Maybe it's a trisomy 18 birth. Maybe Mm. it's uh, some medical, they've never heard these words before. And all of a sudden you've been through the the joy of birth and now the disappointment of this news and now they ask the questions what do you want us to do this child will have no quality of life based on this condition let's start with the the birth well you're right that bioethics issues stem from actually originate from either pre-birth issues to birth to to natural death or prolonged death but if a family comes to or a couple comes to birth in a hospital and the child is born with difficulties that were unanticipated, mm-hmm. then they will wonder, when was this known? So they'll have lots of questions about that. But beyond that, to answer your question about what do you want us to do, that really, you need to have a good conversation about that. You need to have um the parents available and talking about that. Uh, That's a really difficult situation. But I'm thinking, okay, I'm a 20-something young mom and husband, Mm -hmm. and I've never heard these words. And now you're all these doctors, these people in white coats are telling Mm -hmm. me things, and I I guess I'm supposed to do what they say. Well, it doesn't pay to uh, check your brain at the door, Mm -hmm. as they say. When you go into a hospital, you need to uh, take your reasoning ability with you. Mm -hmm. You need to, uh, as much as possible, be informed. And when you're not, you need to ask questions. So that's probably the first thing. And nurses are more likely to be interested in education um, mm-hmm. at the bedside than physicians. Not so much their lack of interest, but lack of time. And so the nursing staff has uh, often taken the role of educator for the patient and family. And that's important. But the underlying desire really for the patient should be that they get their information. And how you do that is to keep asking questions. And if it's not explained in terms that you understand, then you need to ask more questions. Ask them to explain again. Uh, Typically, whatever you say as a physician to a patient, uh, they cannot repeat that to you later because there's a lot of information that comes with that. It's the setting and the attention isn't always to the facts, if you will. Let's talk a little bit about more common things like um, Infertility. Ah. So we've got lots of options today we didn't have 15, 20 years ago. Okay, true. Infertility is um, a problem for a good number of couples. It's unclear how many people are are afflicted, although I think the latest CDC information I saw on that was about 15% of um, reproductive age females will have used infertility services. That um, doesn't translate clearly or cleanly over. Infertility can be a problem from a variety of um, issues. 
uh, anatomy, physiology, can be either a problem with the male or the female in the mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. And often there is no discernible problem. Right. So everything works, or everything seems to work, but there's still no baby. And July 25th is the anniversary. The first, the world's first test tube baby was mm-hmm. Louise Joy Brown. She was born on July 25th in 1978. And that really did open a wide variety of uh, infertility practices or possibilities for couples. And it's hard to proceed through all of those uh, if you will, alphabet soup concoctions. Right, right. And so it's important to know for the for the would-be patients, if you will, as well as their uh, pastors and those who consult with them, their friends, to understand where life begins. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't understand that, then it's a little difficult uh, when you get further down the road. For instance, after Louise Joy Brown was born in Britain, Parliament was worried. They said, we don't have rules about this sort of thing. We don't have laws. So they put together a a committee headed by Mary Warnock. And she was an ethicist. Uh, She's now Baroness Warnock. And um, the Warnock Committee basically advised the Parliament regarding infertility and in vitro fertilization. And they said, in a nutshell, we can't tell you what the embryo is. They knew it was human. And they knew it was alive. But we will not tell you what it is, but we can tell you what to do with it. And I would posit that one cannot know what to do with something unless you know what it is. Interesting. So it's important to realize that the that what you're dealing with is human life, especially in terms of embryos. Well, prior to what, about 70-something in the States, Roe v. Wade, certainly before then, life was the moment of conception. Right. Yes. And uh, OBGYN text would say that as well. Now people are kind of sidestepping that a bit because when you have egg and sperm put together in a Petri dish and um, it is not, that's fertilization. And when the egg and sperm come together and the sperm fertilizes the egg, it's then called a zygote. It can be developed in the lab for about, uh, well, several, multiple days. At five to seven days, it's called a blastocyst. That's also an embryo. So an embryo goes up to eight weeks gestation. After that, it's a fetus. And after that, hopefully it's a newborn. And you can always say, I'm having a baby. Right. But, oh, but when do we start changing the definition of life? Oh, exactly. Well, it's hard to say that this person's pregnant if the embryo's in a dish. And so lots of people have moved that goalpost, if you will, to say that pregnancy is when the, when the baby implants, when the embryo implants in the uterus, so when we or is have, transferred. So when we have so-called in vitro fertilization, and we've taken sperm and egg into a Petri dish, and we have several viable uh, embryos at that point? Yes, yes. So now we're going to freeze those because we don't want to implant four well, see, there you go. That's part of the problem because if you understand that the embryos are human and alive and there are children, if you will, or grandchildren, what have you, is it, uh, is it in their best interest to be frozen? Mm-hmm. Because embryos that are frozen, when they're thawed, a good number of them uh, die. Mm-hmm. So, so those are some questions. And a RAND study back in the early 2000s found in the U.S. we had more than 400,000 embryos. Mm-hmm. On oh, ice. Snowflake babies? Snowflake yeah, babies. That, that's the term they use. And so part of that stems from what we understand our responsibility is and what we understand about life. 
itself. You and Ben Mitchell have written a book, Christian Bioethics, a guide for pastors, healthcare professionals, and families. And it's a great format the way you've laid it out because you don't have to have a master's or an MD or a PhD to navigate through, which is what we need as consumers. We need the help. And and you, I love the way you break it out under three headings, the taking of life, the making of life, and the remaking, faking of life. Let's take those each one at a time. So when we talk about taking of life and euthanasia, we know the name Jack Kevorkian, perhaps, assisted suicide. Um, is there a place medically that you as a doctor would say, yes, we should take the life of a patient? I cannot. Okay. I could not say that. Okay. So a uh, person, and we have this pro- this wonderful problem. We're living longer, right. but the downside is we got all kinds of complex issues in our 80s and 90s, most that, of us. That is true. However, uh, it has rarely in the history of mankind been the answer to difficulty to get rid of the person with the difficulty. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing. So if you are suffering, I can express sorrow. I can suffer with you, which is the real definition of compassion. But to kill you, to get you out of your misery or mine, mm-hmm. is a step that we are not allowed to take. Okay, but if I've got cancer and I'm in intractable pain and there's no cure and it's just slowly eating me away and I've done chemo and radiation and all these drugs that don't even have names yet and I'm in, in misery, why would you prevent me from taking my own life? Well, I would do my best to encourage you that in the midst of this suffering that you may there there is perhaps some time for you to deal with situations in your family that need to be dealt with before you die i would do my absolute best to treat your pain Mm -hmm. dr pellegrino who died last year uh, was a strong proponent for pain relief Mm -hmm. and felt that by and large most pain can be relieved or at least uh, diminished such that there is should be no call for mm-hmm. either physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. Physician-assisted suicide is basically requiring people who have been trained as healers to become killers. Okay. And while they may not wield the needle, the syringe, but by writing a prescription for a drug that is life-ending and ex- explaining to the patient how to take it mm-hmm. to do that, they become culpable right. in this death. I liken it to a thought experiment. So say the chefs in a particular city were given the privilege or the responsibility of not only providing food, but providing poison on request. So... You have a family member who just graduated from college, say, and you go out to dinner in this city, and you're having a lovely time. As you are seated, you notice that there is a couple next to near you, an older couple, and their food comes before yours, and you're about to receive your salad. They've got their main course, and you notice that the older gentleman is slumping in his chair. How comfortable are you going to be? picking up your fork to dive into your salad. So when you give people a dual responsibility, mm. you the blurring of the lines is not the only thing that's blurred. So I as a I find it inappropriate that because you want to kill yourself, then you want to make me responsible for mm. your death. Mm-hmm. I think that's unfair. Mm -hmm. And not only that, it goes against 
millennia of Hippocratic medicine. So, For those who don't know the Hippocratic Oath, the first thing? Okay. Well, the first thing, actually, you're probably referring to the basic concept of do no harm. The Hippocratic Oath actually comprises three parts. The first part is swearing to the gods and goddesses. Um, The second part is the responsibility of the Hippocratic physician to his teachers. And they were all male at that time. So uh, that's not a misnomer. The um, Hippocratic physician swore that he would teach only his his children or the children of his uh, teachers medicine. And that he would protect that art. And finally, it's uh, con- the third part of the oath is a delineation of his responsibilities to his patients. And a couple of things there are noteworthy. One was that the Hippocratic physician swore he would not provide a pessary to cause an abortion for a woman. Another is that he would not prescribe a poison even if asked. A third is that anything he heard would be uh, held confidential. And fourth, that he would not sexually assault the patients or their their, um, servants. So now what do we have? As Dr. Pellegrino pointed out, we have 2,500 years or so of Hippocratic medicine and only a few decades of medical ethics. But we have gotten to the point where the provision, at least in certain states, namely Oregon, Washington, Montana, and now Vermont, the provision for uh, not killing your patient no longer applies necessarily if you prescribe the medication. Mm -hmm. No longer is the promise necessarily made regarding abortion. No longer is the promise made about, sadly, sexual assault. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, the the final one is about confidentiality. And so we have HIPAA. HIPAA today, right. But it's all electronic and available. (laughs) <laughs> so that's a, Sadly, a, yes. a brave new world. Uh, let's, let's move from taking of life to the making of life. We've touched on it a little bit with in vitro. What are some other uh, issues that maybe have, have sort of, they sound great medically right. as they come along for this young couple that's trying to have a baby, and uh, yet there's some boundaries there. There are boundaries. And I think it behooves the young couple to um, avail themselves of of input from people like yourself, from pastors, as well as um, read themselves. They need to educate themselves in this arena. The making of life would include more recently something that's come on the horizon, and it's more it's closer than the horizon actually is three parent embryos. In 2008, there were at that time over 40 countries that banned germline modification. And I'll explain this. In the egg and sperm, you have your chromosomes, uh, your chromosomal complement of who you are. And uh, in all of your cells that have nuclei, except egg and sperm, you have 46 chromosomes as a normal human uh, person. And the egg and sperm, uh, each of those have 23 chromosomes. So when the egg is fertilized by the sperm, the 23 and the 23 come together for 46 chromosomes in a normal child. There are a few, um, there, there is DNA outside the nucleus. Those chromosomes are inside the nucleus of the cell, the, mm-hmm. the major, the central portion of the cell. The outside, the outside the nucleus is called the cytoplasm. And in the cytoplasm are the little powerhouses called mitochondria. Mitochondria have uh, DNA of their own. Right. 
And if you're looking at your mitochondria, you would see only your mother's mitochondria. And so the maternal mitochondrial line is passed down, not the not from the father. Okay. So some women have mitochondrial disease. And the mitochondria have about 37 uh, genes or so, and primarily about 13 of those are of interest. So if a person has, if the woman has mitochondrial disease, she doesn't necessarily want to pass that along to her child. These are varied in their expression as well as kind Mm -hmm. of problem. Mm -hmm. And so the workaround has been that you take a normal egg, if you will, from a donor, lop out that nucleus, take the nucleus from the would-be mother, lop that out of her egg and put it in the donor egg, fertilize that with the father's sperm. But as I said, your nucle- your mitochondrial DNA come Maternal. from your mother. In this case, they would come from the egg donor. So for the first time, we're contemplating having DNA from the father and the mother in the nuclear DNA, but then having DNA from a third party. Another mother. Another mother. So you've got a, quote, three-parent embryo. And that is one form of germline engineering in that those genes will be passed down. So this is taking the concept of designer baby to a whole new level. It is. It is. Britain has uh, run a consultation on it, and they have uh, the body that authorizes, that that, uh, monitors and licenses all labs that deal with egg, sperm, or embryos, has given it the go-ahead. And uh, But Parliament will have to change laws if they're going to do that. Now, let's go back. Percentage of... of women with that mitochondrial problem? Oh, great question. Well, in Britain, about 100 babies a year are born with mitochondrial disease. Okay. And that's, again, it's variable. It's variable at expression, you know, how severe is it, right. and, and, the, and the kind of disease that, disease that it is. So this Well, the, is, science, the science for the three-parent is working. Well, we don't know that. It's okay. done in, in animals. Thank you for pointing that okay. out. Uh, Matalapoff at Oregon Health Science University has uh, succeeded in, I believe it's chimpanzees, but at any rate, an animal model. But no, well, we then don't of know. it'll work in humans. <laughs> exactly. We don't know if it's going to work in humans. And what so was... you're, you're basically doing research on all succeeding generations, whereas never before have we contemplated. Again, so science and technology and medicine are wonderful things all. At, at what point do we stop, Joy? I mean, if, if we stop researching uh, ALS or we stop researching um, Alzheimer's or arthritis, at, my mother has type 2 diabetes and all that goes along with that. Yes. And, you know, oh, how I wish there was some procedure for her, you know, her retina issues, on and on and on. And we all have a parent or a loved one. Um, I mean, goodness gracious, where, where do we where do we? Where do we evaluate philosophically how far we should go with these things? That's a great question. Well, uh, you can take penicillin as an example. If you have, if your child were very ill uh, from some uh, bacterial process and penicillin would be the right drug for him or her, why would you not give it? Well, the, the considerations there would apply to these issues as well. Did you kill the druggist in order to get it? Did you get the prescription validly? Did you uh, did you pay a fair price for it? Uh, was anyone harmed in the middle of that? Mm. Did you drive too fast and run over a pedestrian or something? So all of these issues come to the fore is, have I harmed someone in the process of attaining my goal? And does my goal, um, is it consonant? with the fact that I'm to be a good steward of what I have been given, 
Is it consonant with the fact that I have a beginning into my life? Is it consonant to, uh, with the fact that God is in charge of our days? So those are some of the issues. We're talking to Dr. Joy Riley, co-author with Ben Mitchell, Christian Bioethics, a guide for pastors, healthcare professionals, and families, covers a wide array of issues from the taking of life, making of life, remaking, and faking of life. Joy also deals with organ transplantation, stem cell research, genetic engineering, in vitro fertilization, abortion, euthanasia, on and on it goes. Big issues, we've just scratched the surface. Again, Christian Bioethics, a guide for pastors, healthcare professionals, and families, Ben Mitchell and Dr. Joy Riley. Joy, thanks for coming to the studio today. Thank you, Michael, for having me. This is Michael Easley in Context. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com. Follow Michael on Twitter at Dr. Easley. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context.